Good morning. Good to have you here. Thank you for joining with us on this spring break week and grateful that you're here. Many of you know that I recently moved and uh, I had this pressure washer, electric pressure washer, and I haven't used it since I moved here. I'm looking to really try and get rid of it and was wondering, you know, Now, hopefully, I just made you very uncomfortable, because we don't come to worship with our own agenda. And that's really what God does in our text today. Earl, you can move that out of here. I appreciate it. But as we talk about selling goods, it's exactly what Jesus addressed here in our text today. In your Bible, John chapter 2 Verses 13 to 22, our text is Lord of Worship, would be our title. Let me read our text to you today. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling pressure washers. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray together. Lord, take your word and by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. May we remove any idol that consumes our life, our thoughts. Lord, minister your word to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You say, what in the world does this text have to do with us today? It's Old Testament economy. We're in the New Testament, the New Covenant. What does this have to do with us? The setting for the story is of great importance for you to understand it. Jesus had just put his public ministry, begun his public ministry for three and a half years. He's going to fulfill that ministry here on earth. Interestingly, at the bookends of Christ's ministry, beginning and the end, are two times that he cleanses the temple. At the start of his ministry and at the end. You know about the triumphal entry, coming into Jerusalem, Passion Week, and the event after the triumphal entry is he goes into the temple and he does exactly what he does in this text here. They're distinct But his father's house was of great importance to him. The synoptic gospels share the time at the end of his ministry when he cleanses it. 
And John shares some significant difference, differences here in this time, in this passage, so we know there are two different events. I remind you that John's writing is always to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. That is why John writes the Gospel of John, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So John doesn't write chronologically as some of the other Gospel writers write. He's writing this in the beginning of Christ's ministry to share how Jesus is the Messiah And he uses this occurrence to prove it. Our text today states that this is the start of Passover. For years, Christ would come with his parents once a year, and then as a young adult to the temple, as it was commanded by law. He would have observed the abuse that took place. And now he enters his ministry, having just called his disciples he just performed his first public ministry, first public miracle, turning the water into wine. And Jesus now comes and he's going to purify the place where God is worshipped in that day. Passover was the first day of a feast. The feast lasted seven days, a full week. And on Passover, they were commanded, the Jewish family was commanded to remove all the unleavened all the leavened bread in their home. For that week, they could only eat unleavened bread. And it wasn't just put it in the back of the pantry. It was get it out of your house, remove it. There had to be a removal. The reason is leaven represented Egypt when they were under bondage and slavery in Egypt. And it represents evil and wickedness. And Christ's cleansing of the temple clearly corresponds to this event about getting the leaven out on Passover day. And he's cleansing and removing the evil that was present in the temple, the house of worship. So Passover started the Holy Week with the cleansing of the Jewish home, cleansing it from all leaven, all evil, Jesus starts his public ministry with the cleansing of his father's home, his father's house, and he cleanses it from all greed, all idols, all evil that was present there in time of worship. Now allow me to share the evil that was going on. Josephus, the historian, tells us that about 250,000 Jews would descend upon Jerusalem. A quarter of a million people came into that city. John tells us about the selling of oxen, sheep, and pigeons, as well as the money changers. Animals, as commanded by the Old Testament law, were used for the sacrifices in worship. The people would also have to pay a temple tax each year. So as they would come, they'd have to pay a tax once a year to the temple As they arrived. And as man would normally do, in steps his heart and he abuses that which God had set down and intended for worship. Money changers would charge an exorbitant amount in exchanges for the temple tax. 
They had to change their currency to what the temple received. And they're coming from all over regions of the land. So they would exchange their money and they'd be charged ridiculous amounts to change to the currency of the temple. Concerning the animals for sacrifice, I want to read to you what Annas Bazar, a historian of that day, said about the sacrifices. A person would bring their own lamb in order to save money. An inspector would deem it unfit. It would be rejected and the family would have to buy a new lamb, which was a tremendous amount of money for them. They would take away the unclean animal, and later on that same unclean animal would be brought back for another family as an unblemished lamb and sold for a large amount of money. This is what Jesus Christ is confronting as he comes in to the temple area. Greed, the love of money, profit. The root cause of evil portrayed here at the temple. The average person could do nothing about it. Worship of the holy God had become a money-making scheme. Money and greed became an idol under disguise. In these verses of scripture, there are several things to make note of. In your notes, you'll see number one, Jesus. First of all, Jesus identifies himself as God. John does this in his writing to convince the Jewish people that he is the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus is self-authenticating that he is the Son of God. For he states, do not make my father's house a house of trade. That statement would be blasphemy to the average Jewish person. Calling a holy God his personal father. As blasphemy. And Jesus here, as John's writing, proves to the people, this is my father's house. I descended from God the Father. The second thing that we see here to make note of is Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament scriptures. Not only that, he is showing and proving he's God, he's fulfillment of the Old Testament. Look at these verses. Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Thousand years prior, the psalmist wrote this. A thousand years later, Jesus fulfills This very text of scripture. He's zealous for the house of worship. Secondly, Malachi 3, 1 to 3. He fulfills this scripture. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That was John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. 
And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Who were the sons of Levi? Levi was a tribe that was given authority over the temple of God. And hundreds of years before, Malachi writes, he's going to come and he's going to refine this place. And all of a sudden, the sons of Levi will present their sacrifices in a holy manner. Jesus fulfilled the scripture written by the prophet Malachi hundreds of years prior. The third text, Zechariah 14.21b, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And listen to this. And there shall be no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. He dismisses the evil, the greed, the idols that were there in that temple when he begins his week and the ministry, his years of public ministry. So Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah. Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament scriptures. Now for the average Jewish person, what should that mean? The Messiah has come, right? They knew the Old Testament. They knew it by heart. They knew it well. But they will not accept him. He came unto his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. John 1, 12. What was the response of the people then? Our text says, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Excuse me. He just did. You know your Old Testament. He just showed it to you in three various ways. Last week, Pastor Mitch preached the changing of the water to the wine. He just showed you his miracles. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And they say, show us a sign. Now, he had zeal to drive out the evil workers of iniquity. He fulfilled Psalm 69.9. He purifies the temple of God from the evil workers. No one else was doing that. For hundreds of years, there was abuse. Jesus fulfills Malachi 3.1-3. He proved and showed to them what he claimed, that he is the Christ, the one to come. He says, my father's house. He claims to be the promised one. And his works revealed it. The response of Christ was in three days, I will raise this temple up again. Scripture is clear to tell us that Jesus there is talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. The people wanted a sign. So what's his answer to that? You destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. What do they think? This guy's a nutcase. He's crazy. 
It took us 46 years to build this place. Three days, and they dismiss him. They write him off as crazy. Let me share another thought. I've gotten to know a few of you. If while I'm preaching, somebody comes through that back door and starts to disrupt our worship, I know a few of you men, what would you do? Sit there and let it happen? I think not. You would be up out of your seat and you'd be dealing with it because we gather to worship our Lord. You're interfering with this. Why didn't that happen? Why did that not happen when he came into the temple and is wreaking havoc in that place? I believe they knew who Jesus was. They heard all about him. They heard the miracle. They knew their Old Testament scripture. They wouldn't accept him for who he was And Zechariah 14.21 is fulfilled. If they were zealous for worship to a holy God, they would have never allowed all this distortion to take place in the temple of God. But they allowed it. They desired it. They followed it. They participated in their idols. They wanted Jesus to meet their standards rather than accepting who he was. And I say this to you, I say it kindly, but many in the house of God today act and react in the same way. They want the same thing. Lord, do this for us. Lord, do this for me, and then I'll obey. Or they make or want worship to be how they want it to be. And if it doesn't fit their box, they're gone. They're off to somewhere else. It's like this. Jump, Jesus. Do this. And it's like, no. And we're, I need a sign. And we are no different than what was presented in the temple of God years ago. Jesus says, you have all that you already need to know. How much do you study Jesus is the real question. How much are you in his word? Get this. When you come for worship or when you're home in front of your Lord and praying, reading the Bible, we're here. Is your worship adoration of him? Or is your worship expectation from him? That's the question. Lord, do this for us then your worship is expectation. Worship should be, Lord, thank you. Thank you. 
Is your worship expectation or is it adoration? Allow me to share two truths today and then draw some conclusions. Number one, there is a distinct purpose for worship. There is a distinct purpose for worship. In our text today, there are three imperatives. Jesus gives three commands. Whenever you study scripture, the main thought of a text always centers around the imperatives. Find the commands, find the imperatives, and you'll understand the text. So the first two commands are given here in the first portion, and they're very clear. The second, the third command is quite unusual, and we'll share that with you. But the first two commands give us this truth. There's a distinct purpose for worship. My approach in worship must always be pure, right, honest, open, and expression of love. Never bringing any idols with me into my worship. I'm holy. I'm pure. Then I can worship him. My response must be adoration for who he is. He's God. Jesus is Lord. So we come, when we sit on the park bench and you're praying, you come to him with great adoration, admiring who he is. When you come to church, you don't come with preconceived ideas. You come to adore and give him all the honor and glory due his name. I've always defined worship as this. Worship is all that I am responding to all that he is. Listen, if your God is big in your life, your worship will be big toward him. If you make him small in life, your worship's going to be lacking. Worship is all that I am, all that you are, in response to all that he is, all that he's done. And I adore him. I give him my all, my everything. I'm not holding a thing back. I'm not coming with a preconceived agenda. Well, it doesn't, you know, I like this. It doesn't fit my box. No, you got worship messed up. You're expecting from him rather than adoring him. Jesus was full of zeal concerning this truth. He sees distortion, gain, and profit, and he says, these things should not be. Get them out of here. This is where God is. And it needs to be a holy, pure place where we can respond to him. The two commands he gives, take these things away. That's a command. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Worship can never be a money maker. The house of God is not for profit. 
idols replace true worship of a holy God. You can walk in here and have a heart full of idols. Things that take precedent over your Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus saw happening in that day in the temple of God. And he does something about it. Get him out of here. Because he's purifying a holy place. He's clearing the deck so that the right purpose can be fulfilled. It often amazes me at the root of what evil is often money that drives people. Is it any wonder that God commands us to be content with what we have, to be gracious with what we have, and that God gives us work in order to help other people? That's God's design for money. Having it's not a bad thing. Enjoy it. But it better not drive your agenda. Philippians 4, 11 and 12, 1 Timothy 6, 8 to 10, Ephesians 5, 2, Luke 6, 38. Always keep it in the proper perspective. God blesses you to bless others. When you come here for worship, you cannot come with your agenda. It's never for your gain. It's always to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. The day we don't exalt him, shut the doors. The distinct purpose for worship is remove everything and anything that interferes with adoration and exaltation of an almighty God. It's all about him. It's about him. Get the stuff out of your life that causes distraction, dismissal, defeat. Take these things away. There's a distinct purpose for our worship. Number two, there's a distinct person in worship. The third imperative that the Lord gives us is unusual. The command was in response to their statement, show us a sign. Jesus uses himself as a response to their question. So our worship should always be about Jesus Christ. Because what's he put out there? In three days, I'll raise it up. I'll die. I'll be buried. I'm coming out of that grave. So our worship should always be about the one who can change our life. And that's Jesus alone. He uses himself as the response. It confuses them. But he's literally saying, I am God. I am here to do away with the old covenant that you are using. And I'm establishing a new covenant. This 47-year-old edifice is going to change. Worship will now come through the heart of the person he's going to live within. And the new covenant changes everything. We know that in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. Every rock was removed because they dug out the gold of the temple, which melted down between the rocks. And Jesus prophesied that, said that not one rock will be left upon the other. And the Romans pulled everything apart in order to get the gold. And not one rock was left on another one 
in 70 AD. Matthew 24, 2, Mark 13, 2, Jesus said, every stone will be leveled. But Jesus' statement is unusual. It's unique in this matter, manner, because he says it as a command. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's a command. It's not indicative. Now, we know it's a fact, but Jesus is commanding them, destroy this temple. What's he speaking of? Not the edifice, his own life. And he's commanding it. Go ahead. You destroy this. I will raise it up. I am God. And we know by the power of the Holy Spirit, he came forth out of that grave. And the triune God is alive and well. And they could not understand it. He says, I will raise it up. He's confronting again the Jewish people with the fact that he is the Messiah. Third thing, an interesting point here is the Greek word for temple. And here in verse 19, 20, 21 is different than the Greek word for temple in verses 14 and 15. In verse 19, 20, 21 The Greek word for temple means inner. Where did God manifest himself in the Old Testament temple? Behind the curtain in the what? Holy of Holies. It was the inner place, the inner sacred place where God was. And Jesus references that with a different word meaning inner place than what he said when he entered the temple at the time of the Passover. It's a different word. That's how precise Scripture is. You can put every bit of confidence in his word because it's true and it's accurate. And that brings us to an important point. Jesus is letting us know that the new is better than the old. The new covenant He's going to make and to do and perform of dying on the cross for our sin, being buried, rising from the dead, that this is far better than what you're seeing right here, Jewish people. It's better. God will dwell not in edifices, not in buildings. He's going to dwell in you the follower, the disciple, the believer in Jesus Christ. Where's the temple of God today? Right here. If you profess Christ, you can say right here. Look at these verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Friend, the new is better than the old. You now have the Spirit of God. God Himself, the third part of the Trinity, living within you. What an awesome truth. Everywhere you go, work, neighborhood, church, home, Grocery store. Everywhere you go, you have him with you. 
You didn't have to go once a year and make your sacrifice. He lives within you. I trust you have him today. If you have any doubts about that, we'd love to talk to you after the service. We all need to repent of our sin and invite Jesus to be Lord and Savior. And he comes in to indwell us, to live within us. Look at these verses. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, that's Jesus Christ. We come to him, he's a living stone, he was rejected. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious... Because he took our place as our substitute. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wow. What a privilege. You are being built as this spiritual house. Now go back to verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted, the Lord is good. Friend, as Jesus purified the temple... What are you commanded to do? Put away, cleanse your life, get rid of envy, strife, jealousies, all these same things. Christ purified on that day at the temple. You must come to the place That worship cannot and is not about what you want to make it. There is a continual cleansing and purification of the temple. What's the temple today? Right? There has to be a continual cleansing. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have to continually remove the idols, cleanse and purify your life so that your worship is not driven through or by idol worship. He dwells in you. Every day you sin. You need to confess it. You need to stay constant, pure, holy, Get rid of the idols. Dismiss the distractions. Remove your agenda for gain or personal involvement. Your heart must be right before Him. With all your brokenness, Christ by the Holy Spirit works this purifying process in your life. Jesus is just, get this, Jesus is just as zealous For the temple he lives in now, as he was for that Old Testament temple of that day. He's just as zealous for your life. 
that you walk in this newness of life. He loves you. He wants to be your Savior. And when we receive Him as Savior, He loves you so much that He cannot leave you where you're at. He's growing you. He's sanctifying you. He's purifying you. He's cleansing you. That we might be made and like the image of Christ. That's his plan, his purpose. Now, as I close, let me give you some final thoughts for con- in conclusion. The event happened under the old covenant. You live in the new covenant times. You are the temple of the living God. Make sure your life is pure, cleansed, right before a holy God. If you're born again, you have the indwelling God, the Holy Spirit abiding in you. If he was zealous for that temple, he's zealous for you. Number two, how you start is just as important as how you finish. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? That's the starting point. You cannot clear out the sin without the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing you from all your sin. You must turn to him. And he's going to clear out the sinfulness in the final week of his life just as he did at the beginning week of his ministry. So it is in your life. You need to stay pure and right. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's the greatest and biggest decision you can ever make. But finishing faithful is just as important as beginning your life with Christ. Number three, is there anything that has crept into your life to corrupt, harm, or distort your worship of him? Is there anything distorting it? Confess it. Forsake it. As we sing the last song in a moment, as the band plays, Jerome and I are here. We'd love to pray with you. If you need Jesus Christ, come talk to us. We'd love to talk with you. If you need to just come deal with yourself with God, just kneel at this altar. Listen, he's zealous for your temple just as he was for that temple. It's the house of God. You are the body of Christ. Did you notice in verse 17 and 22 an identical phrase? It says, his disciples remembered. What did they remember? 17 and 22. They remembered the word of God. They remembered the words of Christ. How much are you in? The word of God yourself. You see, when you get in that situation at work and it's difficult, the spirit of God who lives within you can bring to your remembrance, help you remember, just like the disciples. This is what Jesus says. And you'll be able to live a life pleasing to him because you've saturated your life with the Word of God. 
And the Spirit of God can bring it to remembrance in your life. And then one last thing. Allow me to relate what Pastor Mitch said last week. When Jesus changed the water into wine, Jesus took a possible shameful situation and made it into a glorious good situation. Remember him saying that? The bridegroom, they ran out of wine. Would have been a shameful thing for that family. But Jesus comes, changes the water into wine, makes it a glorious thing because it was the best ever. What's he do in this text? John writes immediately afterwards and says this. Here's a shameful thing. This is happening in the temple of God. And it shouldn't be. And Jesus takes a shameful thing again. And he turns it into a holy thing. Are you willing to allow him to take your life, make it into a holy thing, pleasing to him? You are the temple of the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. You're zealous for us. You paid a price for us. We've been bought with your blood. Therefore, may we honor and glorify you. Cleanse us of our impurities, our self-driven agendas, the things that interfere with our worship of a holy God. Make us right, pure, May our worship be all adoration and thanksgiving for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.